Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the first of a new series of Provoke Media podcasts that we are conducting in partnership with CRISP, the leading provider of early warning risk intelligence. And the series is going to be looking broadly at embracing change in 2021, something that you'll all have to do whether you want to or not. So that's going to be fascinating. And we're going to start by looking at some of the big issues that are going to be driving communications and taxing communicators in this year ahead. And the first of them couldn't be more timely because we're going to be looking at COVID-19, the development and production and distribution of a vaccine. And as a result, um, we have with us um, Sylvia Taylor, who is Chief Communications Officer at Novavax. Um, I'm guessing that a lot more of you have heard of Novavax than had heard of it before Christmas when we started planning um, this podcast, because um, in recent weeks, Novavax has joined the list of companies um, producing uh, COVID vaccine. Um, and Sylvia, why don't you just give us a little quick background on the company, uh, the vaccine and your role there? Sure. Um, well, Paul, thank you so much for having me and also um, to Adam um, for sponsoring this, this piece. Um, I am responsible for global communications as well as investor relations for Novavax. We are a late stage biotechnology company that is committed to providing vaccines for emerging infectious diseases. And what that means is that um, a little over a year ago, when SARS-CoV-2 was first identified um, out of China within a few months, um, actually a few weeks, our company had developed a vaccine candidate uh, against it. And within um, a few months, we were in the clinic. So we actually started human trials in May of 2020. And uh, just last month, we presented some late stage phase three efficacy data actually in the UK and in South Africa, um, which showed um, really good efficacy and initial positive safety against not just the current strain of COVID uh, or the original strain of COVID that was circulating, but also some of the new variant strains that we're seeing come out of South Africa and uh, the UK. So Novavax um, is a company that has a proprietary nanoparticle technology. It's, it's our secret sauce for uh, preparing and um, hopefully eventually commercializing vaccine candidates. And so, you know, we can be ready when the world calls and the world needs us, um, as is the current case with the COVID uh, pandemic. Great. And we also have with us uh, from CRISP, Adam Hildreth. Um, Adam, why don't you quickly introduce yourself and for people who don't necessarily know CRISP as well as we do, um, give us a little bit of background on CRISP. Sure. So I'm Adam Hildreth, the CEO and one of the founders for CRISP. Um, we've been in the space for 
15 years, since 2005, of looking at digital communications, digital conversations, um, and trying to work out where they, what part they play in society from the negative elements. So what they're driving from a risk perspective to enterprises, what online harms they're delivering into society and across social platforms themselves. And today I would suggest that our, our focus is quite unique in that where we go after is really understanding the groups and the digital groups specifically that are driving the narratives and content that we're all consuming. And we use that to predict PR issues, security concerns, operational issues. And of course we talk about online harms, but today that really relates to the, the anti-vax movement, um, which is, is affecting us all and ultimately will it if it continues. So very much about acting as an early warning, predicting the issues, but by focusing on the, the groups that are creating those narratives and content and then they're spreading it as well. Sylvia, one of, one of the things that came to the fore um, very quickly at the beginning of the, the COVID epidemic, um, and I'd like to start by, by looking at this by way of context, is um, the question of who we trusted um, and, and who we didn't trust um, very quickly became a driving force for a lot of conversation. And the pharmaceutical industry, despite the fact that you're in, in, in the business of saving people's lives, um, has always had a very mixed reputation. Um, there's, there's almost a resentment at people's dependence and a resentment at the fact that uh, companies make profit off other people's misery. Um, Tell me a little bit about sort of the reputation of the sector and whether um, you know, people in the, in the biotech arena, which is a little different from sort of the mainstream of the pharma industry, um, suffer from the same issues or face a different set of issues. Um, how, how do you feel about your sector's reputation? You know, I think um, overall, the uh, pharmaceutical industry in general has suffered some uh, crises of reputation and, and confidence. And I think a lot of that has been driven by the fact that the industry overall needs to do a better job of communicating the value that we provide. You know, as you mentioned, um, we sometimes save lives, we sometimes uh, elongate life, we sometimes relieve symptoms and suffering. Um, and you would think that that would be perceived as only a good thing and people would embrace um, our role in the global healthcare system and our ability to, to do those things I articulated. I think because of this um, really complex question about value, which is often driven by the high price of, of the medicines um, that the pharmaceutical industry in general produces, I, I think that um, that has sometimes caused the reputational hit. What is interesting with um, COVID and a crisis, a healthcare crisis, like uh, the coronavirus pandemic, is that uh, we are thrust as an industry in a leadership role in being a solution for the pandemic. Um, you know, we're kind of positioned as the way out. And one of the things that I'm very proud of is how the industry has rallied with governments and funders around the world and um, other public health entities, as well as 
other pharmaceutical companies collaborating together in one ecosystem to try to deliver solutions against the pandemic, be they vaccines, be they um, and you know other other therapeutics um, that might sooner impact the pandemic. So I think that um, trust in science, belief in science, belief that there can be a better tomorrow. Um, we've as an industry been able to be part of that conversation. And my hope is that um, people will see the value that the industry be, uh, brings and that potentially it can lift the reputation of our industry overall. How, how does that fit with what you've, you've been seeing, um, Adam? Because um, it does seem to me that, that while there is all this skepticism about, and particularly I think in the US, though it's probably global, uh, about the pharma industry. Um, the main sort of conspiracy theories and um, fake news about COVID has been about China and whether it was deliberately released. It's been about the World Health Organization and its ties to China. Um, it's been about Bill Gates looking to implant us all with microchips that um, track our every move. Um, but what, what, have you, what have you seen in terms of the pharma industry and the biopharma industry um, over the last sort of 12 months as this story's evolved? So I, I, we, we've seen a general theme over the last couple of years, first of all, which is really the rise of both bad actor and agenda-driven groups that really that coordinate online for the majority of the time, albeit they existed. Um, and they have really come out in the last 12 months with regards to COVID-19. So I think we've always had, there has always been the reputational type problems around pharma that we've, we've spoke about just now. Um, but we've also had the other issue there, that's that there are certain agenda-driven groups and potentially bad actor groups out there that have their own agendas as well that they want to push. And they have jumped, that's the real thing that we've seen, them jumping on the back of it. So however good pharma can be, and let's face it, they have really rallied together and worked with government and everyone else to, to save us and put us back to the, the position that we thought we were in to start. So they've done an amazing job. But at the same time, the narratives and content that have been created and shared, and you mentioned a few like whether it's Bill Gates, whether it's 5G, um, whether it's a way for governments to, uh, you know, say to take control of, of you know, us as citizens, a lot of these narratives are being driven by the, the very groups that have always existed, you know, anti-vax groups that don't believe in vaccination. And that's a freedom of speech issue. And we're always going to have that. But at the same time, we've seen those particular groups. You've got these other groups out there that are doing everything they can to sort of poison the ecosystem of information that we are sharing. And I think that's been the biggest change on the reputation side. And specifically with pharma, that big, the big evolution wasn't just until we the brands were sort of thrust into everyone's faces through the media, which is you know, the different brands behind each vaccine, it was very much an anti-vax narrative in general. You know, pharma's bad as a whole because of anti-vax, and this is what happened. We've had this for lots of vaccinations throughout history. What really changed with brands coming to the sort of forefront was specific narratives were generated targeting individual companies and corporates. And that's what we're really seeing as a theme that's coming through with different groups behind each one and different tactics that are coming out. And, and also the power of these groups is, is beyond belief sometimes in terms of how they can generate a narrative and how quickly it can spread across the globe 
to different consumer groups as well. So I think that's the big change we've seen going from general anti-vax to something that is re a really emotive subject for everyone and then just putting um, a little twist on something on their information to turn information into misinformation or further into disinformation that we then all spread. And then that being targeted again directly at the, the brands, not just pharma and anti-vax in general. So that, that's the big theme we're seeing. I think one of the things that's interesting, if you don't mind, Paul, no, if I no, comment on what you're saying is how quickly misinformation spreads. And, you know, as a communicator, the challenge on, on corporate reputation that it might have, sometimes those efforts uh, at misinformation are malicious. Sometimes they're simply innocent misunderstandings. You know, we had a situation a few weeks ago where on social media, somebody posted that they believed they were being uh, excluded from our phase three clinical trial and they were not, they thought they were being excluded for a certain reason, um, that this person was HIV positive and that was not the case at all. Um, and so what happened was within, within a couple of minutes, somebody posted that and then people started kind of climbing on and saying, Novavax, how could you do that? That's not the right thing to do. And you know, we were able to see it and immediately jump in and say, that's actually incorrect. Please see our protocol you know, for, for what the correct information is. Um, but the fact that things like that can spread so quickly um, have a, an extreme, um, not only corporate reputational impact, but potential impact on people's desire to be vaccinated in general. Ill will does not help. And I think that is a, a great example when we talk about understanding the groups behind that. Sometimes mis that's why we have it. There's a big difference between misinformation and disinformation. And, and I like to group it as one's accidental. Misinformation is actually I've just put two and two together and I've got five and it's an accident. The other is almost deliberately driven by a group. And a, and a big part of CRISP and what we're working on always have is where did this thing originate from? Is this, be, is this a narrative being pushed by a group that's got bad motivations or is this just an accident that we just need some really clear communications out to do? And there's a, so really understanding who's driving the content, who's driving narratives, who's spreading it, who's sharing it, even down to is it foreign states, right? It really helps comms teams, you know, C-suite leadership can understand what the right action to take is because there's a huge difference between the two and it, you're right. The, the, scale of, the scale and speed at which things spread, whether they are true or false, and unfortunately the, the false side of mis- and disinformation can sometimes spread a lot, a lot faster, is um, it's getting faster at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the things that, that I've found to be really fascinating um, as the, the vaccine development process has progressed is the... Um, the complete divergence really of what the pharma industry is doing and what the mainstream media conversation is about because what what you've seen on the one hand in the pharma industry i don't want to i don't want to sort of paint paint a, a an overly rosy picture of this is this tremendous cooperation um between science-driven companies um, just to find a solution and to develop it. And it, it, you know, it, it has been less about being first to market and more about just being part of the solution to the problem, um, which is great. 
But then on the other side of the equation, you know, what, what you're seeing in the media is this conflict-driven narrative, not about the industry, but about the way in which people view the virus. Um, and I'm sort of fascinated by how you stick to science-driven, fact-driven messaging in such an extraordinary political environment in which, you know, one, one side of the political divide has now it seems a vested interest in skepticism about everything related to COVID, um, whether, whether in fact COVID is real, whether it's really a virus, whether it's man-made or um, organic, um, you know, whether the, there should be a vaccine, whether people should get vaccinated. We're seeing, I've seen surveys out of Texas suggesting that anywhere from 20 to to 33% of Texans are still resistant to the idea of a vaccine. I'm sure that there are numbers for every state in America about that. How do you stay on, how do you stay on scientific messaging, Sylvia? And how do you avoid, or, or at some point, do you have to wade into the politics of it and say, you know, these people are wrong and these people are right? And how do you, how do you balance that um, in corporate reputation terms? In some way, um, as a science-driven company, managing our corporate reputation in, in this really um, complex environment that you're referring to, Paul, is easy because we just stick with the science and we are doing a lot of it. Um, never in our industry have companies been able to move as quickly as we have. And the reason, um, but there are multiple reasons for it. One is the tremendous trust in the form of public funding that has been bestowed upon our industry. We are the recipient from both government and, and NGOs of over $2 billion of financing in the past year that has enabled us to do things that we normally don't do. One is quickly develop and get into the clinic. The other is do things that normally are done sequentially, um, taking the financial constraints out of it. We have done many of those things in parallel. So developing while you're doing a manufacturing scale up, while you're producing doses at risk, you normally wouldn't be producing doses before you know that you can get them approved. But, but this funding and this trust that, that, um, that has been put in our industry to do that has enabled great things to happen. Because we're moving so quickly, we're constantly generating the science. And for us, that's what's important. So we have um, risen above the politics because quite frankly, we have been getting funding from some of the, um, from, from governments, right? Um, and have needed to maintain some neutrality because we're grateful for the funding, we're committed to the science, we're committed to the public good. So there's enough for us to talk about. Um, and we also know what our job is, that is to deliver a vaccine. And that's what we stick with. And we find that that's what people wanna hear from us. Where are you in the clinic? What data are you generating? And when can I get my vaccine? And one of the things that's fascinating, you, you mentioned, Adam, that, that misinformation can, can travel faster than accurate information in some cases, is while what Sylvia says is essential to the credibility of her company and her industry um, and to our profession, um, 
it's also a constraint that the bad actors that you mentioned earlier do not operate under. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, sort of, does that, does that give misinformation a, a competitive advantage in the, in the marketplace of ideas? And how, how are you seeing companies, how are you advising companies to counter that? So I, I think in, be careful where I go, this one, that we've always had sort of misinformation to a way. If you think back to the shocking media headlines, that doesn't quite really tell you exactly as it is, but it gets you to read the story. It's the same tactics that have been taken to the next level for the, these groups that are behind it. Um, but the critical bit that we're seeing is that there are so many pieces of information out there, misinformation, disinformation, correct information, just general information, that, that where we see our goal is, is one is to understand which groups or who's originating that content and sharing it and try and really give that intelligence to whether it's government or public health or the enterprises and brands we work with. We think that's really, really important because then you can understand motivation, but also which one is, it seems to be spreading within your target audience that works and, and the reason for this is that there's only a finite amount of resource we've got communication professionals to go for that counter narrative right we probably see a hundred new pieces of content or equivalent narratives generated every single day the critical bit is knowing which one of them we now need to go out and show the science about because we can't go out and counter every one of them with a hundred facts because it's just never going to work no it's not possible so I think that's the critical bit, prioritizing, and, and this is the same for governments, for pharma, for enterprises, prioritizing which needs the real evidenced research and the science behind it, and then putting all the effort be, you know, behind that particular piece is the bit we're working on or trying to work on. And it's not, and we're seeing this by the way, not just in, in pharma, across a whole variety of, of um, different sectors that exist in this space, but prioritizing them because, you know, we've been through how fast it spreads and understanding who is behind it and who is re receiving the information and resharing it is critical. Because at the same time, there's a lot of COVID-19, um, well, anti-COVID-19 groups out there. If they're just sharing stuff between themselves, it's not a problem. Um, they're always going to, and that's great, carry on. Um, we're not going to convince you otherwise. But if it's really hitting the main population or specific demographics in the population, and we know we need to really target a real strong message to them and really counteract with something, the real strong science, that's where I think the resources need to play out. And that goes, as I say again, for, for governments and public health, as well as brands and pharma that are behind this. It, it, there's a sort of historical conventional wisdom in the risk communication arena that, you know, the, the, the world is, you, you can sort of neatly divide the world up into to, to three groups of people. I mean, they used to say a third of people are going to hate you no matter what you do. A third of people love you and a third of people are in the middle and you can change their minds. And that, now, the percentages may have changed in, in recent years or they may be different for this specific issue. But that does raise an interesting question of where you focus your communications resources and who you're targeting. Are you spending most of your time with those people in the middle do you do any 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 outreach at all to the people who you know hate you um or or have you just sort of write off 
the whatever it is, five, 10, 20% of people who are um, so skeptical and so cynical and so conspiracy minded. Um, how, how do you balance that, Sylvia? You know, I think it goes back to uh, what I talked about earlier. You know, we know what our job is. We know what is expected of us. And that is to deliver a vaccine that is both safe and efficacious that can help end the pandemic. So we talk about the elements of our clinical program and now uh, more recently our data that will um, be the proof points for demonstrating that hopefully um, we can have authorized and eventually approved a vaccine that can help stop the pandemic. That is a big job, that is a big remit. And you know, if you believe that information, unbiased, scientific, uh, peer-reviewed, validated information can change hearts and minds, you know, that, that's what we're about. We're about conveying that information. There will always be people who do not trust. There will always be people who um, have a different point of view. Our goal is to deliver our science, communicate about our science, and do it in the most transparent way possible. So, so realizing that um, hesitancy it is a real issue for people. You know, they want to know that they need to take something, right? Um, what about, sorry to, to interrupt. Okay, go ahead, what, go about, ahead. what about the idea that, um, that, that people embrace stories more than they do facts and data and that you have to reach people with a narrative about, about how this impacts their lives rather than just showing them the, the data that says this is safe, this is effective, this is government approved, this is expert approved. Right. How, how, do you, how do you feel about that and the need to kind of craft more personal emotional uh, communications? You know, um, it's such a good point and we don't have to work very hard to do that because it's around us. You know, um, we often say there's no, um, you know, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years. There's no time that I've worked on something where my target market is everyone on earth, right? Um, and so, you know, everybody sees the impact, feels the impact somehow on COVID. Uh, and, you know, the more the pandemic rages on, the more people continue to feel the impact. So the story we're telling here is that we wanna be part of the solution. And we're going to, in a really scientifically driven and transparent way, show people what we're doing to try to end the pandemic by staying in our lane, which is providing a vaccine. You know, the stories that you talk about are really important um, insofar as, you know, for certain groups that are disproportionately impacted by coronavirus, um, and here I'm talking about certain ethnic populations, racial um, groups who are disproportionately impacted and often most distrustful of, of the um, scientific community and efforts to get to a vaccine in general. Uh, what we are doing is enrolling these subpopulation, be they older adults over 65, uh, be they African-American groups um, or Latinx, et cetera. We're enrolling those groups. We have made a, a concerted effort 
to have those groups represented in our trial so that we can generate the data. And we use that to tell those stories of, we are studying our vaccine in multiple populations. You're not just gonna take our word for it that we think that we're overall you know, effective or safe, but we're actually gonna show you by looking at the groups that are important and that are disproportionately impacted. So there's, there's a tremendous story to tell. I've also talked a lot about transparency. I mean, never in my over 20 years in the industry have I seen a level of transparency that we're seeing today. And, and to be specific, you know, typically uh, companies will talk about their clinical studies, they'll talk about the endpoints, the number of patients enrolled, um, but you don't typically publish your protocol, which is the blueprint of the trial, how, it's, how it will be conducted, um, what the statistical analysis plan is. Now you're finding all companies are posting um, publicly the protocols so everybody can see exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it. That is a level of transparency and allows a level of dialogue that we've never seen before. Um, and I think helps us to tell the story of, we're not just gonna tell you what we're doing, we're gonna show you and we're gonna be really open about it. it there's historically, I think, been it, it's been an article of faith for the PR industry that, that there's a pretty sort of linear relationship between transparency and trust. And the more you sort of the more you trust people with information, the more they will trust your your messaging. Um, is it is it still true? Can can greater transparency overcome what we're seeing now, Adam, in terms of the um the the bad actors that you described can a can a good faith argument prevail um uh, the answer is yes absolutely but there's some challenges to overcome if, if we if we look at the where where we've come from we went from a, a sort of world 20 20 years ago in dot com where information was pushed through mainstream media. mainstream media went digital but it was still a very much a push type approach um where it was there was there's legislation that governs what you can publish and what you can't publish and journalists and their ethics and everything else. We then went to sort of social media 2.0 where it was still quite open. So although users were generating that content, it was still fairly open and we could all sort of monitor and see what's going on. I think the big hurdle we've got today is we're going to what I, I call closed social, which is we, we tend to all operate in these quite small niche groups, whether interest groups, friendship groups, related to work, related to our interests, that no one really has an exterior visibility of. So it's almost too, as, these, as information is passing around these groups, it's almost too late to put out the real truthful information from a corporate, from, a, from government's perspective. And that's what we're doing a lot of work on to try and understand what narratives are spreading with what groups, even if it's closed, we're not invading privacy, but we need to know what's happening because you only almost have one shot at it. And you've got to make sure that the evidence you're putting out, the counter narrative you're putting out is really, is really hitting the issues that people have got. So that's the critical bit right now is understanding what bad actors or agenda driven groups are spreading. What am I as an individual sharing and what seems to be going in these closed social groups so that we can have that focus on understanding what as a corporate, as a government, as a public health, that we need to put out there 
that's got the evidence, it's got the science, it's got those believable facts, because it's not an infinite number of things we can put out there from a corporate comms perspective. And Sylvia raised a, an interesting issue in terms of um, you know, the, the questions about who's getting access to the virus first, both, both globally and, and in a lot of markets domestically. And I'm wondering whether the conversation has shifted at all in the last few months from, you know, is, is COVID real? Is the vaccine part of some conspiracy to, hey, where's my vaccine and why am I you know, why am I scheduled to get it in May when other people are getting it in February and March? Um, and, and obviously, you know, there are, there, there are serious questions um, in a lot of markets about preferential treatment and who gets the disease first. You alluded to um, the historically troubled relationship between African-Americans and the pharmaceutical industry, for example, which is driven by far more legitimate concerns than some of the other conspiracy theories that we've been discussing. Um, have you seen a change in the tenor of conversation about that? Or is, is the negative information out there still very much driven by um, the, the conspiracy mongering, um, anti-vax, anti-science um, groups and actors? I, you know Oh, go ahead, Adam. No, no, Sylvia, please go. Well, I was going to say from my perspective, you know, as a, as a company um, developing a vaccine, you know, we're certainly watching the tremendous amount of information, um, both from other companies, but also how the conversation is moving um, in, in the vaccine um, story. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of attention now to access. And by that, I mean equitable access around the world. So, you know, the, the pandemic is a global problem, which will need a global solution. It won't help anybody if not all public, uh, not all populations are, um, let me say that again, um, the pandemic is a global problem and it needs a global solution. It won't help anybody if there's disproportionate access to the vaccine, for example, in high income countries versus low income countries. So for us, we have um, stated a commitment to equitable access and that looks like uh, as high as half of the doses that we'll produce once our full capacity is online will go to lower and middle income countries. Um, so, so we're trying to make that idea of equitable access really real. And it's not just Novavax, it's other companies also um, and other groups that are collaborating such as CEPI and Gavi and WHO um, and the COVAX facility, which is designed to provide access to uh, vaccines all over the world. Um, so I think um, that's, that's what we're focused on. And I think, you know, we've got to be doing something right. And this is where I don't think my optimism is unwarranted. So our trial, for example, um, Prevent 19, our US and Mexico trial that was uh, aiming to enroll 30,000 people, we've just about today reached that target in just over six weeks. We also had um, targets to enroll certain populations like the African-American community, like the Latinx community. And for the Latinx, our goal was 10 to 20% of the trial. As of now, we've enrolled over 18% of our trial. 
So to me, that shows that um, that we must be doing something right as an industry, that people really are clamoring to get into the trials. And the more people are in the trials and the more experience grows with vaccines, the more people will feel comfortable getting them. And hopefully that'll be positive for access worldwide. Yeah, Adam, did you want to talk about what you've seen in terms of the conversation? It, yeah, so I... I think with what we've seen of this timeline events from those, you know, the agenda driven, the bad actor groups, those groups that were driving it, that they were last sort of six months of last year, they were very much out in the open, spreading conspiracy theories that were more targeted directly to the brands. That that's still going on. But what we've started to see at the 2021, at the start of this year, is they've gone further and further underground. So where they coordinate and mix together. And the reason they've done that is they are fueling the fire because what you're starting to see now, when we look at, so the way that we monitor sort of digital conversations is to look at groups, as I mentioned. And actually we'll sort of see is it's demographics that we're really seeing of society that are starting to say, well, hang on, we're a younger demographic and I'm just pulling up on age on this one as, a, as an example. We, you know, we gave a lot for this and now it looks like we're not going to be able to go and go on vacation because we're not being vaccinated ourselves yet. We weren't the ones at high risk. So that conversation's going on and, and that that is, a, it, you know, to be fair, you, you, anyone can have an opinion on that, rightly or wrongly, we've prioritised certain members of society who may benefit. But what we have seen and, and one of our goals at CRISP is to, to infiltrate these groups that are out there that are fueling the fire is they're getting involved in those conversations and sort of pushing them a lot further down the line than what we'd expect. So you've got the general population, certain demographics that have got genuine complaints that rightly so, they should be saying, hey, look, we've given a lot now that we can't go on vacation because actually we haven't had our vaccine, but this was never really about us. It was about protecting certain people that were high risk. That's probably absolutely fine. And it certainly wasn't going anywhere. But at the same time, those groups are now getting actively involved in those conversations and fueling the fire. So we're, we're trying to sort of model the two to work out who's fueling the fire and who's got genuine concerns and what the, the communications look like. So it's a, to answer the question, I think it's a mix of both right now. And we're seeing new tactics from these groups out there and they're going underground more and more to coordinate to the point where, to give you an example, to join some of their groups at the moment, their, their digital groups that has hundreds of thousands of people, you have to prove that you've been an anti-vaxxer as a member of a group for the past two years and present your CV. So when we talk about monitoring groups on that, there's a lot more to it than developing some tech and doing that. But that's the sophistication we're getting to now. And, and um, it's only going to you know, get worse for us, you know, a harder job, um, but worse for everyone. It's the same division between, uh, you know, or the same dichotomy between the people who are trying to bring us together and the people who are trying to tear us apart that we are seeing um, in so many aspects of life in 2021. And I suspect that's, that, that theme will come up again um, during this podcast series. I'm, I'm gonna wrap up in a, in a moment or two. I just wanted to, to finish off with a question for Sylvia about um, sort of short-term and long-term. Um, short-term, um, whether the credibility level of the industry, government, and whoever else needs to be trusted for this to work is, in your opinion, sufficiently high that we'll achieve our goals and get enough people vaccinated to bring this thing to an end and, and um, 
and, and be able to move forward. And in the long term, whether you think this will have a positive impact on the sector's reputation and um, its relationship to the world in which it operates. I think that I and many others in our industry can't do what we do every day if we don't believe that we'll be successful and in overcoming some of this misinformation or mistrust to get um, enough of the population of the world vaccinated so that everybody can be safe and return to normal life. You know, I, I have to believe we'll get there. I think what's going to happen is, as Adam's saying, people look around and say, oh, well, this group got vaccinated, but I still can't go on vacation. I still can't go to work. I still can't do the things that I want to do. And so I think as people see the positive impact of, of vaccination, start to feel that, um, I think, almost societal obligation to do their part. I, I think that um, we will get out of this and I think people will, will eventually do the right thing. I think long-term, um, you know, you can't be such an integral part of the solution, which I hope is before us sooner rather than later. You know, as an industry, we can't be such a hopefully big part of ending the pandemic and not reap some of the benefits from a reputational standpoint, I think what we do with that goodwill um, will uh, be interesting and will define us as an industry. But, but there's no question that you know, the industry has rallied together, has rallied with the diverse stakeholders to try to do the right thing and help humanity in a way um, that is more noticed than ever before. And I can't help but think that that'll you know, reap positive dividends for the industry as long as we continue to do the right thing going forward. I think it's a great place to end. Thank you very much indeed, Sylvia. Uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, thanks to our audience for tuning in. We'll be back with more in this series um, throughout the first half of the year and hopefully beyond. Uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, everybody. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.